Welcome to episode 110 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is our Don McColl's um, part two edition. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. So we first uh, spoke with Don. What was that, Shane, back in episode 204, I think it was? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's right. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an awesome discussion. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I was I was geeking out pretty good, and and uh, so I was super thrilled when Don had reached out back to me and and mentioned that uh, that he had, that that he'd like to and be willing to come on a, a game because we we did have some audio challenges. I think you know right around between the three of us, it was just one of those days, and uh, so we we had lost Don a little bit at the end, but uh, we also had mentioned I think when we started that episode that we had more material. Then we probably could cover in a single episode anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's uh, that's probably accurate. So what I'll do is I'll just give a very brief uh, introduction to uh, to Don McColls, and uh, then we'll uh, we'll we'll go forward just with our uh, regular discussion. So just as a very brief uh, introduction, uh, and if people want to listen to that first episode first, uh, episode two hundred and four, that's probably worth your while to go back and and listen to, and then. Uh, you can kind of hop in, uh, in into this one. So um, let's see, Don is a comet hunter and he's also one of the inventors uh, and perhaps most importantly, popularizers of the Messier Marathon. Uh, he is an author and is well known in the amateur astronomy community uh, as a supporter of the community. And we really appreciate him coming on uh, today to, to talk to us and, and to talk to, to our amateur astronomy uh, listeners. Uh, and then looking at his Twitter, you also see that uh, He's uh, a person who does a lot of uh, presentations um, and that sort of thing. So kind of kind of with that, Don, I think what we'll do is, uh, if you don't mind, and we kind of talked about this just as a bit of a, a pre-conversation, is uh, I was just curious about your public outreach. You speak to a lot of clubs and meetings. Uh, you're very approachable. You've spoken at our club uh, and, and I know lots of other clubs as well. Uh, you also do your podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your public outreach and maybe... Uh, we'll go from there. Well, uh, thank you. It's good to be with you two again and uh, to be part of a wonderful podcast. You do, you two do a great job and I really enjoy listening to your podcast. Um, I, thank you. I began giving talks on mainly on comets back in the early uh, mid 70s after I began comet hunting. And those were mostly to astronomy clubs. Uh, I would visit them in person. And uh, by the way, I've found that in, in 40 years, the average attendance at an astronomy club meeting where I give a talk is about 30 people. You can almost always expect that. <laughs> um, there were times, though, uh, as we got into the, well, there's been several times where I've given a large number of talks in a short period of time due to uh, astronomy events that were upcoming. For instance, for Halley's Comet uh, in the mid 80s, I gave fair number of talks. And um, when uh, Comet Austin was coming by, I gave a few talks. That one, that Comet did, did not do as well as expected. Um, uh, things such as that. But uh, there were times where I would go three or four years without giving a talk. I only would normally give talks where I was invited. So you would have to reach out to me. And after, as we got into the 80s, um, living in San Jose, raising a family, working. Um, I realized if you want me to give a talk, we didn't have a lot of money, you know, so I mean, you you have to pay me to get there and at least pay my expenses so that I'm not paying out of pocket to give a talk. It was in the 80s and into the 90s when mostly it was other astronomers giving the talks. Uh, David Levy would be out on, on, especially with his comet, in 1994 hitting Jupiter, but you know, he would give hundreds of talks and uh, Steve O'Mara would give talks and a lot of the amateur astronomers, uh, uh, Richard Berry and so on. And, and I, I wasn't, in fact, there was a time in the uh, early 2000s where people thought I had died because um, they didn't hear from me, you know? Uh, so, uh, the talks normally uh, would be in person, and I began by using slides. And I, I learned early on um, that when, in fact, John Stanford once gave a talk 
at Riverside Telescope Makers on how to give a presentation. And um, one of the things brought up is that when people see a slide, they usually get all of the information they need within about the first three or four seconds. And to have a slide linger on the screen for three or four or five minutes, um, it then becomes rather useless after a short period of time. So my talks would have 200 and 250 slides and would go through those in an hour. So we would be flipping through a lot of images. Uh, in time, I began to use PowerPoint presentations and uh, it was a little bit easier and you could do more with the graphics and you could put sound into them. Uh, some of my, in my opinion, some of my best talks began um, 1994, I discovered three comets in one year. So late that year, wow. next year, I gave talks in Houston and they flew me out to a few places to give talks. And I've always tried to make the talks funny and entertaining. And I would put a lot of rock and roll music into them. Um, <laughs> It was more of a multimedia event. Uh, the guy in Houston said it was the funniest talk he has ever heard in his whole life. Uh, and, and, and we try to keep the level of uh, entertainment high along with it being informative. And, and part of the reason for that is that my talks about comet hunting usually last about 75 minutes. Uh, I could go longer, but, you know, the audience can't. <clears throat> Uh, now, since yeah. the uh, COVID, uh, I've been doing about two or three talks in person um, <clears throat> in the mid, well, 2015, 2016. In fact, um, 2017, I gave only one talk, and that was in, in Livermore, California. Uh, I was also a caregiver for my dad at that time. So <clears throat> you don't leave the house a whole lot just to go out and give a talk. You can go to work and stuff, but going to give a talk and stuff is something different. So um, mm -hmm. uh, I haven't given any any public talks uh, for now over two years. And um, I'd like to get back to that when restrictions lift. Um, and, you know, we, we, those are more fun because we, that's where I put the rock yeah. and roll music in. Uh, that's when I have can have more jokes and more interaction with the audience. With, with Zoom, you don't get much reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're talking to people, and you certainly know that, but you also have the screen, and they cannot comment. You don't hear if they laugh at the jokes and stuff. Uh, I've been giving talks lately on visual comet hunting, uh, not just about me and my life as a comet hunter, but about the whole history of comet hunting. And the reason for that is because visual comet hunting uh, as a hobby is coming to an end. And, and so when it's coming to an end, then you can look back at the history of 260 years and some of those comet hunters who, who found a significant number of comets over the past uh, two and a half centuries. I also continue to give talks on the Messe Marathon. That continues to be a, a strong uh, interest to many amateur astronomers. And, and so uh, they, they want to know how can we do a Messe Marathon? What's it all about? And, and how do we do that? So I'm, I'm generally available to anyone who asks. Uh, if a club contacts me, can you give a talk? Yeah, you know, we'll work out a time and stuff. And doing it by Zoom then is, is fairly easy because I can do it here from home. Uh, but every talk I give, I go through the previous talk, I know some, some speakers will just pull off the old talk and reuse it, but I'll go through and say, now what seemed to work last time and what did not work and mm -hmm. what, what can I take out? What can I add? The visual comment hunting talk is always updated because there's a section in there where I show the sky coverage area done by the big surveys. And if I'm giving the talk in May, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pull up the data just before I give the talk a couple of days and then say, this is the areas that they have covered in the last two weeks. And then I'll go back. Uh, I have records of all these sky coverage maps and I'll pull a map from 2004 in, in May and 2010 in May and 2015. I'll say over the decades, you can see how their coverage has varied in, in the month of May. Um, 
so, so uh, I continue to give talks and um, I've given them at a few conferences. Um, one of the biggest ones was one up in, um, in Canada in 2013. <laughs> and that was at the North York uh, group in Toronto. They have a big star okay. party in August. And yeah, I was Starfest. Yeah. yeah, I was their keynote speaker one year. And I talked to like a thousand people at one time. So yeah, they have uh, a great big tent. <laughs> yes, I talked in a tent. Uh, yeah, that is a big tent. Holds a lot of people. And that was a great conference. Yeah. Great people. Um, yeah. And, and Comet Eisen was was coming in that year too. And uh, and and Carl Battens was there to give a talk on that too. So him and I met up nice. quite a bit about comets and stuff. Nice. Cool. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying about, you know, um, speaking live and in, in real time with people. Um, I, I teach an astronomy class and it transitioned online for the past two years. And then last summer I started uh, giving public talks again outside um, mm-hmm. at, at some of the events like Shane and, and myself and a couple of other friends uh, put on with the national parks. And wow, it, it's just such a, it's such a, a rich experience compared to just doing things online, eh? Yes. Yes, it certainly is. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Um, yeah. You were mentioning about common hunting. Maybe we'll move, move along naturally uh, to that title. Um, you know, we, we mostly know you as, as a common hunter, um, you know, and I'm just curious, uh, you know, but how you get started, like, like what, what prompted you to get started common hunting, Don? Well, I, I did not start from zero to 60, in, in 10 seconds, it was, uh, I became interested in astronomy at about the age of eight when my sister brought home a book on meteors and I used my dad's binoculars and his, uh, he was in the Navy for 30 years. So he had a book on navigation and um, I used that to learn the constellations, got my first telescope at 13, a two inch refractor. And then three years later, got my uh, six inch Celestron. So I had learned my way around the sky. And in the early 1970s, I did astrophotography. And it was uh, not so much shooting through the telescope, although I could do that if I put the camera on a tripod and pointed it into the eyepiece. But it wasn't very sophisticated type of stuff, mostly piggyback if I wanted to do the Milky Way with a telephoto lens. And I I did a lot of stuff in black and white because uh, Color photography was three times more expensive. I did all my uh, darkroom work myself. I had a darkroom kit and all the chemicals and stuff. And I had a few of those pictures published in um, a very small magazine. Observer's Sky was the name of the magazine. It's no longer being published. But sometimes they would put my picture on on, on the front cover, which was kind of gratifying. But I did not think that astrophotography was the way for me to go. There were a lot of people doing that then, and they were beginning to get some great results. But that would mean um, tripling the expense to go into color and and guiding through the telescope and so on. So uh, I was in the Army from 1971 through uh, early November of 74. And when I got out of the Army and I had taken my telescope with me to my last station in Arizona, um, I thought, well, let, let's start a new project. Let's do something that will keep me looking at the sky. I enjoy the view of the sky through the telescope. I think you guys certainly know what that's like. And what type of project would keep me looking through the telescope so that every year I would see the Messe objects again, and every year I would see a lot of other stuff. Well, there were a few projects I, I, I looked at and there were, it came down to three. One would be variable star work, which there's already an organization that will help you get started, the AABSO. And they certainly welcome estimates of the brightness of the stars through the telescope. Another would be monitoring asteroids to see how they change in brightness. And um, you would then be watching an asteroid for many hours and estimating its brightness every five or 10 minutes. And from that information, we can, we can tell what the rotational period of that asteroid is. Almost no one was doing that. 
And the third was comet hunting. And I had done some comet hunting prior to that, uh, about 20 hours or so. Uh, beginning the week I graduated from high school, I began uh, doing a little bit here and there. And I thought, why not maybe put together a systematic program of comet hunting? And I decided upon comet hunting in mid-November of 1974. And I decided I would begin my systematic searches at the beginning of the new year. So I had a few weeks to, to get everything toned up and decide how I was going to go about it and so on. I chose that because uh, not too many people were, not too many Americans were finding comets. This was 1974. And the last time an American amateur had discovered a comet was 1968. Meanwhile, the Japanese were finding comets. You had this new guy named Bradfield in Australia who had found a couple. And other people around the world were finding comets, but Americans just didn't seem to be doing it. I also wanted to see what it would be like to discover a comet. Um, everything from the reporting of it, uh, the naming of it, the orbit being determined, and any publicity that may or may not come from it. And I, I'm a shy guy. I could have gone with you know, no publicity. I would have been okay with that. But I just wanted to see what it would be like to experience that. And uh, finally, to keep me looking through the telescope, and that would certainly occur because your eye is to the eyepiece almost continuously. So I, uh, I shored up my methods. I divided the visible sky from my location, which was uh, 30, 36 degrees north in Concord, California, or 37 degrees, into 40 sections of sky along the equatorial grids. And um, I excluded areas that had a lot of Milky Way objects in, and I excluded the areas that had a lot of galaxies in. And, and so I had these 40 sections to cover, and I wanted to cover them as much as I could. I had also read on two different publications that it took 300 hours on the average to find a comet. And I read an interview with William Bradfield, and he was averaging about 300 hours to find a comet. So I thought, okay, here's a good experiment. Let's do 300 hours. Let's see what happens. You know, you might find something you might not. And, and so I did. In the first year, I did 307 hours and I, I did not find anything. In the uh, second year, 1976, I moved in March from Concord, California, which had a fair amount of light pollution, to um, San Jose, California, and I began observing from a place called Loma Prieta in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And from there, I, I did a lot more hours of comet hunting, 553 hours in one year, and still did not find a comet. I, I decided to continue. Uh, after the first few months, it became a, a habit almost addicting. I enjoyed the view through the telescope and I enjoyed searching for comets. Meanwhile, other people were finding comets and I wasn't. So I had to work on ways of, of getting better at doing this. Uh, my, my third year, I did uh, 504 hours and still did not find any comet. And it wasn't until uh, September 12th, 1978, three and three quarter years into my search, after 1,700 hours that I discovered my first comet. Wow. That's, uh, that's some dedication. <laughs> that's a lot of hours. Um, so, so Don, when you, like you mentioned the, like the 40 zones or sections of sky that, mm -hmm. that you targeted, um, when you are within one of those zones, how are you going about, uh, looking for a comet or are you just uh, kind of scanning through there? Are you spending time on particular fields, like star fields, just trying to, you know, tease out something faint? Um, you know, 
Well, I guess I'm just kind of curious about how, how you operate within those zones or, or what you're doing at the eyepiece. I've, I've certainly read some stuff about Comet, um, like searching for comets, um, mm-hmm. because when I had my 12 inch light bridge, I was thinking of ways that I would, you know, like a project that would get me using the light bridge more often because it was kind of a pain to set that thing up. Um, and, and I entertained comet hunting, although I never did it, but, um, I'm very curious about how you went about your, your search, uh, within those fields. Well, I would, uh, this was on an equatorial mount. And so I move it along the same right ascension, but I changed the declination. So I would move from North to South or South to North. And I would begin at the Western section, sky moves from East to West and start sweeping, usually with no equatorial drive on. So if I don't do anything, the sky will still move uh, underneath me in a sense, or over me in a sense. Uh, And in in one hour, I would be able to cover one hour of right ascension. But back when I started, I was using a four and a quarter inch reflector telescope. Uh, I saw a little bit more than 100 millimeters uh, at uh, F5 with about 22 power magnification. And I had a field of view of about two degrees. And the sweeping is usually done in a constant motion. I've tried it uh, two ways. One is you move it a little bit, stop, and then move it again and stop. And you can do it that way and you may be a little bit more thorough. However, it takes quite a bit longer to cover an area of sky. One of the trade-offs that comet hunters have to decide upon, besides the size of the telescope and the field of view and where they're going to search, is how fast they're going to sweep and what sacrifices they make. The faster you sweep, the more things you might miss. However, the more sky you cover. And I kind of went for that type of aspect for my comet hunting, wide field of views, not necessarily very large telescopes, but I covered a lot of sky. And so I'll I'll start sweeping. And when I pick up a fuzzy object, it's very important to identify what it is. Um, More than likely galaxy, cluster, nebula, small group of stars, but it could also be, um, you know, it could also be a new comet. So you don't wanna pass over a new comet and, and, and then find out later, oh yeah, I saw that. I saw that last week, but you know, I thought it was a galaxy, so I just moved on. Everything, everything has to be identified. And, and so initially I would be using my Atlas of the Heavens by Scalnate Place, so field edition, and, and look at that. And when you're moving along the same right ascension, it's a little bit easier to understand exactly where you are on the map, or you can narrow it down. If you pick up, um, like when I picked up once, uh, Galaxy 925 in uh, Trianglium, um, you kind of have an idea you're along this right ascension, so you're more or less maybe this declination, and oh yeah, there's a galaxy there. And you see it through your telescope, and now you compare the neighboring stars in your telescope to the neighboring stars on the star map, just to be sure you know you're looking at the right object. And then you you move on. You're not there to observe. You're there to uh, acquisition acquisition objects. Um, It's a search program, not an observing program. If you wanna observe objects, that's different. You set aside some time and maybe a lot of time and, and do some searching but uh, searching and observing. But for comet hunting, once you've identified it, you move on. And uh, uh, an area of 40 degrees in declination by one hour of right ascension would take me about a half an hour to cover. Okay, okay. So so then would you would you like observe these 40 zones and then sort of rinse and repeat just keep cycling through um you know as as time moves on you're you kind of get to the end and then you just start all over again well two things one was after about a year i switched from 40 zones to 68 zones covering the whole sky oh. um because 
there were some comets that were discovered by other people in some of those areas that were not in my 40 zones. <laughs> I thought, well, these other guys are covering the whole sky. I guess it's time I open up and start doing that. I've kind of learned these 40 areas and what's in there. And after a while, I've learned the patterns of the stars around the nebulous objects. So if I pick up, I don't know, M33, you know, you have four, four faint stars around it. And you see those four faint stars and you see them, oh, it's M33 and you move on. And, and the other thing is, is that not all areas are equal. Some of the polar regions and then you have the southern regions. But the places that were quite often most active for comet discoveries is in the western sky in the evening as you get near the sun. And then in the eastern sky in the morning as you get near the sun. Uh, in fact, around 50 degrees elongation from the sun is kind of the ideal place to find comets. After saying that, however, I have to say that anyone can find a comet at any time in any part of the sky. And I learned that the hard way when comet Kobayashi Berger Milan was discovered on in early July, 2nd, uh, 4th, and 5th. Uh, of 1975, because that area was 130 degrees from the sun, and most comet hunters don't search that area, and there's a seventh magnitude comet sitting out there. But uh, getting back to the way in which I would search the sky, when the moon, uh, the moon goes through its cycle each month, and let's say the moon is now full tonight, full moon tonight, um, no one goes out. You get to sleep. We have like three or four nights where we get to sleep and we don't need to comet hunt because the moon will brighten both the morning and evening sky. But once the moon starts rising a half hour or more after astronomical twilight, I would get out into the evening sky and begin covering the western sky, um, beginning near the horizon and working my way up. And as the nights go on, the moon rises about an hour later or 50 minutes later each night. Uh, you have a little bit more dark sky time to cover more of the sky. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, I would cover the whole sky if I could. And that would take about 40 hours of comet hunting. Morning sky, evening sky from the North Pole or North Horizon down to the South. And um, I didn't always get to do that dependent upon weather and doing 40 hours of comet hunting in a month is quite a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then as the moon gets to be less than 40% or 30% crescent in the morning sky, this is about nine or 10 days after full moon, then I would cover the morning sky down to the horizon. I would cover the sky with the moon and the sky. I could keep covering the evening sky if I wanted, but if I behaved myself and was disciplined and had good weather, the evening sky has already been covered by then. So now I concentrate on the morning sky and there's more comet discoveries in the morning than in the evening. And we've known that for several decades. Dr. Everhart's study in 1967 made that very clear. But a few studies done before then also made it extremely clear that more comets are found in the morning sky than in the evening sky. And it's for the same reason we find more meteors in the morning sky than the evening sky. Because as the Earth goes around the sun, we're facing the forward direction in the morning. So you're more likely to run into them. Comets brighten more quickly in the morning sky and they move more rapidly in the morning sky. So that's where the action is. And then, then that would be where I would be concentrating my next two weeks. And I would continue to cover the morning sky from when the moon is about a 40% crescent in the morning sky for about the next uh, two weeks until the, the very bright moon in the evening sky would set uh, an hour before morning astronomical twilight. Astronomical twilight's at 5 a.m. The moon's up almost all night. It sets at 4 a.m. You've got an hour of darkness 
out there. And that will probably be your last shot at the morning sky for another 10 days. So um, especially in 1976, 77, 78, uh, I would have to drive 30, 30 minutes to my site. But once I got there, I would do two, two and a half hours of comet hunting on the average. Wow. That's uh, again, the, the dedication is uh, very inspiring and uh, extremely admirable. I, I, I certainly am probably not that disciplined. Um, I'm curious too, Don, what, what field of view would you have at the eyepiece? Um, you know, you, you mentioned wide field. I'm, I'm just wondering how wide it was. Oh, well, after in October of 1975, my first year, I decided to, to get a bigger telescope. So I got a Coulter mirror. Coulter is a company in California that made 10 inch, 13 inch telescopes. Well, they made big Dobsonians around then. So I got a 10 inch mirror and I asked them to make it as short a focal length as they could. So it came out uh, 38.3 inches or F3.83. Oh, wow. And I. Um, wow. <laughs> back <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah, back then they had. Uh, nothing to flatten the field, mm -hmm. but they, they did have two inch eyepieces. So I began with the 32 millimeter eyepiece and began using, using that one from Edmund scientific cost, I think uh, $15 or something and discovered my first comet with that after, um, by the way, a short story here. Uh, I was living in Concord, California, a suburban type of city with about 40,000 people. And I had moderate light pollution. I guess today you would probably say a Bordeaux four or five. And I switched from the smaller telescope to the bigger telescope. And I could not see any better. In fact, I could not even see some of the faint stuff that I could see with the smaller telescope. And that's because I now had a more illuminated field with that F3.8. So uh, I thought, what, what am I going to do? I got a bigger telescope and it's worse. So uh, I threw the telescope, I telescope into the car and I drove six to eight miles outside of town to darker skies. And by golly, then I began to pick up some faint objects. So the skies really made a big difference. I eventually redesigned the telescope. You know, most telescopes have an eyepiece focuser, which sticks out from the tube. Well, that puts the eyepiece uh, some distance away from the secondary. And because of that, uh, you either need a larger secondary uh, mirror if you're going to have a fully illuminated field of view. Or you go with your normal size secondary and not all of your field of view is fully illuminated. Well, one way to get rid of that is to get rid of that focuser because that focuser sticks the eyepiece a couple inches away from the side of the tube. So I redesigned the telescope and uh, removed the finder and I cut an insert into the side of the tube and put a board over it. And I put a pipe flange in there, pipe, you know, metal pipe okay. like, like you use for plumbing and uh, the flange holds a fitting which a two inch eyepiece would fit in but i also made my own eyepiece which uh, yielded a 2.8 degree field of view i took i kept the flange and took out that little ring ring fitting that the two inch eyepiece fits in and now i put this part in and uh, the field lens of that eyepiece is I think 48 millimeters across, 48 at least. And so that gave me a 2.8 degree field of view and 36 power. And, and I use that for uh, some of my comet hunting and for some of the Messe marathons. It's a very effective eyepiece, but uh, being homemade, I, I made it myself, I, I was not able to correct for all of the aberrations. So you do get some coma near the edge of the field of view. But the field of view is over 100 degrees. Wow. I say, I say homemade. Uh, I was working in an optical lab at the time making eyeglasses. So I had access to uh, almost any type of optic I needed. 
And the deal was between me and my boss, I just had to pay for the lens blank, uh, which is um, a piece of, usually these are plastic lenses, uh, three inches across. We would order them by the thousands with different base curves. And then when eyeglasses are made, we grind and polish the inside surface to the right uh, curvature. And so um, eyepieces are generally plus lenses. So I, I began experimenting with different types and, and, and found a three lens eyepiece I put together into a pipe fitting, which, which works pretty well. I don't use it anymore. Uh, there's more efficient eyepieces now. And I usually use with the 10 inch telescope, the 20 millimeter eyepiece made by um, StellaView. And that gives me uh, excellent field of view. And 50 power, which is good. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just had ahead, a, Chris. Yeah, I just had a quick question about that. Uh, yeah, I was curious because I, I noticed that in some of your uh, images, you're, you're a person who wears glasses, uh, just like Shane and I. And yeah. so do you wear glasses when, when you're observing or do you take your, your glasses off? Or Yeah, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, I take my glasses off. I get my eye right up to the eyepiece because I don't want any stray light coming in. And then I also wear the eye patch. I, I don't know why more astronomers don't do that. I've been doing it since 75 at least uh, because, um, well, for one thing, I have trouble uh, closing my left eye and keeping my right eye open. And two, even if I, I could, I, I suppose the muscles would, would wear out eventually. So I, I just put an eye patch over my left eye and take my right eye up to the eyepiece. Huh. And then yeah, I think you, you have to refocus uh, when you take huh. off your glasses. Yeah. And, and you don't find like the uh, optical errors like in your vision uh, are, are too problematic when you do that or do you just ignore them? Uh, no. Uh, amazingly enough, I went to the eye doctor for the first time in like three years the other day. And I've got a stigmatism of one, I believe it's one and a half diopter on my right eye. Yeah, and, and yet, when I'm looking through the telescope, um, and the exit pupil is probably four millimeters in this case, uh, I don't. I, I, I get round stars. I don't have any streaks. Huh. When when people have astigmatism, sometimes that cannot be easily corrected. Yeah, they, they do make lenses that that do correct for that that you can put on your telescope, but I don't use one of those. Huh. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I had another question, um, you know, and, and just like maybe this is in general in, in observing, but then I know that uh, at one point in time, Lumicon made a, a filter for observing comets. I was just curious, like, have you ever tried that Lumicon? I think it was like a swan band filter <laughs> or, or, or comet filter or something like that. Do you ever, do you ever try that? And, and maybe do you use nebula filters when you're observing? Yes, I have used a swan band filter and Lumicon, uh, Jack Marling founded Lumicon. I knew him. He lived in Livermore. I believe he confirmed one of my comet discoveries back in the 80s too, but uh, he sent me a couple of swan band filters that would fit on binoculars. And I have used those on binoculars sweeping kind of near the sun in twilight. Wow. In, the, in the early mornings, but I haven't found anything because the, the swan, the swan band is a part of the spectrum in which comets will produce a lot of light if they have a lot of gas and are very active. Those type of comets would probably be somewhat near the sun, short elongation, uh, short distance in astronomical units from the sun. And so that would be the place to search for a comet that is producing a lot of light in the swan band. It knocks out some of the twilight, and, and so you get in, increased contrast. And I have used that in the past. Last time was about a, a year ago or so. Uh, I haven't used nebula filters. I know Michael Rodenko of Massachusetts discovered I think all three of his comets using a nebula filter. And I believe Rodney Austin did for one of his three comet discoveries. Oh, I had no idea. That's, uh, 
That is really interesting. I had no idea that people were were using those just in regular comet searches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Um, Don, what what was your most surprising comet discovery? I, I must say the the first one was I, I, I would think, and maybe the third one. And in nineteen ninety four, the little second two when I found three. But the first one was you know I'm. I'm doing this for years <laughs> and I'm sweeping uh, just below the star Cirrus and uh, picked up the star Cirrus and started moving south and get about two degrees south. And there's a little fuzzy thing. And I thought, first thought is, should this be here? Okay. I knew where I was in the sky. Um, it was kind of surprising. I mean, I, I, I figured, and I had heard from people like John Bortle and others who wrote about comet hunting, that if you search long enough, you'll probably find a comet. But it's a matter of searching long enough. And the 1,700 hours I took to find that comet, uh, Dr. Marsden said that's probably the longest anyone has ever spent to visually find a comet. And you've probably increased everybody's average by about one hour uh, <laughs> over, over time. Uh, and then my second one took even more. And there's been a couple Japanese comet uh, discoverers who have taken 2,200 and, and also another one, 3,300 hours to find the comet. Wow. Um, but, but it was a kind of a surprise, even though you're, you know, you're looking for a comet. You hope to find one. Uh, you know what you'll do when you find one. Uh, but it was still a surprise. And then my second one took uh, seven and a half years. And then the third one took less than a year. So I was kind of surprised when I picked up uh, my third comet, which ended up being 96P on May 12, 1986, just a few degrees south of M31. And I thought, wow, you know, it's been less than a year <laughs> since I found my last one. One-tenth of the time, 173 hours of the average of my first two. Yeah, that's, uh, again, those, those numbers, like the amount of hours you referenced, Don, is just mind-bending to me that, you know, thousands of hours to discover uh, a comet is just incredible dedication to the project. I, I have a lot of admiration for all of those folks. Well, thank you. I was, um, I was raised by my parents who taught me not to give up, my dad especially so. He was a, a disciplinarian. When you start something, you finish and do your best. And that's, the, that's all you can do. But Mm-hmm. Do your best and make sure that you stick to it. And I was kind of raised in that atmosphere. And when I decided to begin comet hunting, as I said, I thought I'll, I'll try it for 300 hours and just see what happens. Um, I thought that would be a fair shake, uh, not just try it for 10 or 15 hours and, and quit. I'll give it 300 hours. But after a few months, it, it became so. Of that, um, I, I, I decide usually in advance what areas I'm going to cover. So what's today? Today's Sunday. So let's say the moon is getting out of the sky tonight. It's been full a few days ago. Uh, I would realize that I would begin in the western sky, uh, covering, in this case, from, say, zero to minus 15 degrees declination using an alt azimuth mount. And then tomorrow, I'll cover the area north of that, uh, zero to 15 plus degrees. And the next day, uh, I'll cover north of that 15 to 30 degrees north uh, and work my way up the sky. And, and so in the course of three or four days, you've covered a substantial area of potential comet discovery locations. And it just kind of builds upon itself. back. When I would cover the whole sky, I'd say, okay, I'll get out there at 1 a.m. and sweep until 5 a.m. And 
in the sense I've got to cover these six regions because the next day I'm going to cover the next six regions and so on. So uh, you're putting together kind of a jigsaw puzzle every month in which you put in the pieces each night. And it's gratifying to be able to do that. You can say at the end of the, the morning, uh, uh, there's no comet there. <laughs> right. I've covered that area and there's no comet there. I, I know that now because I didn't see any, so there's no comet there. So now we move on to the next area and see if there's any comet in that area. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I love it. Cool. Uh, I think, we, well, we have uh, just a few minutes left uh, with you, Donna. Shane and I were just kind of texting there where you were talking. I, we were saying we could just listen to this all day. But <laughs> yeah. the, the time was kind of slipping by faster. Uh, yet yet again, it, it really is uh, really fascinating to, to hear how this stuff is actually done. And that's kind of always been the, the hope of our podcast is to really bring that to people, like the actual, the, the doing of the astronomy and like these really, um, these interesting, fascinating stories, like you talking about manufacturing your own eyepiece, uh, you know, as, as you were grinding glassware. I, I mean, that, that is just, that is just uh, an amazing, an amazing story, you know, hard, hard to kind of script that in. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we had a question from Jim. Um, I, I sent you this beforehand uh, so, so that you could, uh, you could prepare for it. Um, but Jim had written in, he was, he was wondering, uh, because in one of your podcasts, you had mentioned, uh, how Barlow's, uh, are used to increase the magnification of eyepieces, but they don't necessarily have to have the field, uh, of view. And so, um, he was wondering that when you came on, if, if you could maybe, uh, talk about how you use, uh, Barlow's and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe how they can best be used in ways that, uh, that maybe people haven't, uh, haven't tried yet. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the moment. And it's good that Jim listens to my podcast too. Um, Jim's right. Uh, when you use a Barlow with the same eyepiece, it does half the field of view. So if you have a two degree field of view with your eyepiece and you put a Barlow lens, which is a, a lens with a negative uh, lens in it, between your eyepiece and the telescope, you double the magnification, but you have the field of view. I both uh, did some experiments last week to see that's true, and I looked it up on the internet. And if the internet says it's true, it's true, it's true. <laughs> but but what, I, what I would do back in those days, and, and uh, the reason I thought it, it was, um, I, I would change the eyepiece also. And I went from my 32 millimeter eyepiece without the Barlow to a Barlow with what, what I call the Everhart eyepiece. Dr. Everhart discovered a couple of comets back in the 60s, and I visited him in Denver in 1977, and he, made, he gave me an eyepiece and made a adapter for it so it would fit my two-inch uh, eyepiece holder. But it has a very wide field of view, a 46 millimeter field lens, bigger than any other field lens I had at the time. So I would use, but it was a 40, 45 millimeter focal length. And using that only on the 10 inch telescope would give an, a beam of light, an exit pupil coming out of the eyepiece of more than 10 millimeters. So some of that would not be useful. But if you use that with a Barlow, now you have um, more magnification than you did with the 32 millimeter eyepiece but the field of view is uh, more than half as wide as, as uh, uh, th than if you just use a 32 in the Barlow. But, but Jim's right, if you use a Barlow, you do get half the field of view with the same eyepiece. But using the Barlow, you can change eyepieces and still get a pretty pleasant view with a longer focal length eyepiece, which will generally give you a slightly wider field of view. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think so. Did you get that chain? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, no, yeah. that's uh, that's solid. Yeah, at, at a curiosity, I'm just wondering: are, are you still using the uh, the ten inch f three as much? And is that the telescope that had sort of the pink sunset background and looked like you're dressed as an Arctic explorer? Is that that same telescope? Yes, that was Roger Resemeyer who came out and took those photographs. A professional photographer at around the time of Halley's Comet, 1985, I think we went oh, out there, okay. and that's my flashlight. I used a rechargeable flashlight 
hanging hanging from the uh, telescope there on on a on a little string. So I always oh. had that flashlight next to me. Okay, and, and uh, he was... wanted he wanted some pictures uh, bundled up. That that's how I dressed for my my <laughs> comet hunting at Loma Prieta, and, and you guys do that too in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that that's a that's a great shot. And you said that telescope had a was like a ten inch with a thirty. What was it like a thirty one? So f three point one something like that. Three point eight. Yeah. Oh, now, three point. I, yeah, I have that. I have that. Use that. Uh, I have used that recently. I usually use now my eighteen inch reflector. Yeah, it has a light grasp for nebulous objects about one and a half magnitudes fainter. Mm-hmm. Part of my setting circles, one of the encoders has failed. Uh, about a month ago, and it's taken me some time to get it to uh, get the funds to buy a new encoder. Costs like a hundred bucks. Yeah, and uh, and so I've been using other telescopes for comet hunting, in addition to the eighteen inch with with no setting circles. But the nice thing about the setting circles on the eighteen inch is that it has a feature in which it will tell me where I'm pointed and if there's any nebulous objects in the area, and that's very useful for comet hunting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I could see that being very helpful. Yep. Cool. Okay. Well, I think we're just about at time. Uh, Don, uh, do you have anything uh, to to add to to our conversation? I, I certainly enjoyed it quite a bit. No, I've enjoyed talking with you guys. And any anytime you want to get together again, fine with me. Sounds good. Shane, do you have anything else uh, to ask Don or before we wrap up? No, just a big thanks again to Don. Uh, this conversation was so good. Um, comet hunting is just, it, it, it's one of the really exciting topics, I think, of amateur visual astronomy. And I'm always amazed when uh, a visual astron- astronomer discovers a comet, given all of the various satellites out there that seem to uh, kind of hoard the comet discoveries. Um, it's, uh, it's super interesting to me. And uh, always, always enjoy the conversation, Don. And I love your podcast. I, I try to listen to it uh, whenever you put out a new episode. And sometimes it's not the same day, but I usually get to it within the week. And uh, really enjoy your podcast as well. Well, thank you, thank you very much, Shane. Thanks so much, Don. Uh, Don is uh, Don McColls is a podcaster. You can find him uh, by simply uh, looking up, looking up with Don in your pod catching software, or, or you can you can Google uh, Don McColls. Uh, he's also at Don McCulls at, uh, Twitter on Twitter, and he has a great website, D O N M A C H H O L Z.com. Thanks so much for joining us today, Don. Uh, and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.